for all our days. We belong to Jesus Christ who has freed us. And he who has freed us is he who keeps us. Amen? That is the really the, the, the good news of the fact that he has us, that he keeps us, that we belong to him, is that uh, he who saved us is the one who hangs on to us. If you would uh, turn with me to the book of Revelation, our text this morning is uh, verses 18 through 29 concerning the church at Thyatira. Um, I'll give you a moment because I think I have a list of um, references that I will be using this morning. So I'll give you a couple minutes to jot those down as I have been known to uh, get a little excited and, and uh, go through those verses quite quickly. So uh, this way you can take a little time to jot them. Uh, so what we will do is at first we will entreat uh, the God of grace and prayer then we'll read the text under consideration, and then we'll dissect the passage, uh, praying for the Lord to examine us by it. So join me in prayer, if you would. Well, Father in heaven, we ask that you inflame our hearts such that we who may have grown cold and weary would be revived to faithfulness. We repent of those ways in which we have married ourselves to the world and its philosophies and its teachings. We ask that we would hold fast to the scriptures as our only guide for faith and for practice. We ask, Lord, to help us trust in Christ, the one who overcame, that through faith we would become overcomers with him in the world, and that we uh, would rule and reign with him one day as your scriptures promise. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So as you are able, uh, would you stand with me so that together we may uh, hear the word of God from Revelation chapter 2, uh, verses 18 through 29. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds and your love, and faith, and service, and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray, so that they commit all acts of, of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her, her immorality." Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I give to each one of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no bur other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is God's word. I may be seated. 
D.A. Carson's definition of a traditional understanding of the word tolerance compared to the modernist. Here's the traditional understanding of what the word tolerance means. It means, I may disagree with you, but I insist on your right to articulate your opinion no matter how stupid or ignorant I think it is. So I want to repeat that. That that is the traditional understanding of what the word tolerance means. I may disagree with you, but I insist on your right to articulate your opinion no matter how stupid or ignorant I think it is. The modernist understandings uh, of tolerance is this. Tolerance means that you must not say that anybody is wrong. You have to say that all positions are equal and valid. So they've taken this word and what it means, and they've they, societally, we have transformed what this word tolerance means. Tolerance means that we can't say that anything is wrong, that anyone is wrong, and that we have to say that your position, no matter how stupid it is, no matter how ignorant we think it is, we have to say that your position is equal and valid. Well, if all positions are equally valid, then guess what is one of the highest virtues in our society? Compromise. Compromise becomes the highest value if all opinions are equal and valid. If we must tolerate all opinions and say that they are on the same level, then compromise becomes the highest virtue. Secondly, it means that there's nothing objectively wrong, nor is there any truth except for that which a person in themselves holds to be true. You see, that is the highest form of hubris. It is a prideful person that holds on to this idea that the only truth, the truth that I, only truth that I stand on is a truth that, that comes from within me. And because you have a truth, and I'm supposed to say that that is equal and valid, even though that contradicts my truth, I must compromise somehow. I must give in to your idiocy, as it were, as the world's idiocy is. While tolerance and compromise might be the highest virtue in our modern society, what we see in the church is that tolerance and compromise in the modern definition leads to corruption in the church. The first thing corrupted, I believe, is this, the exclusivity of the Bible as the standard for faith and practice. So if we let a little bit in and we have a little bit of compromise, what we first must do, if we're going to be with it societally as as a group of Christians, as a church who gathers, if we're going to be with it, if we're going to be those who, who, uh, who are by definition tolerant, that is, even though we agree with, disagree with, with your, your stance, we must say that you are right too and that all positions are valid, then what we have to do is say, then the Bible is not exclusively the standard of truth. We have to get rid of it somehow. Well, in our text, we see that Christ commends the church at Thyatira for its works of witness, its works of love, faith, service, and perseverance. He condemns the church for its permissive spirit of idolatrous compromise. Christ exhorts the church to hold fast to the truth and to repent of their compromise. Christ Christ promised those that overcome who repent and remain faithful will not come under judgment, but they will inherit end-time rule together with Christ. 
This is the promise of God's word. So I want to remind us just by way, uh, again, of reminder, and how redundant is that? I want to remind you by way of reminder that uh, there's a little pattern as we've looked at the letters, right? So uh, the pattern of the letters is this, that first we see that the nature and character of Christ is revealed. The circumstances of the church then are explained. There's a, com- a commendation and a condemnation or either or or both. Uh, there's an admonition to repent or to remain faith- faithful, and then it follows with a promise to the overcomer. So as you might guess, my outline for today's uh, sermon is the same as it was for the last one, because it is in that same sort of order. So first, let us look at the nature and character of Christ as we see him in verse 18. To the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. Okay, so the theme and the situation with which this letter is concerned, they're almost virtually identical to what we looked at last week in the church in Pergamum. And so Christ introduces himself with the attributes of the divine judge, the same attributes that he, that he would describe himself in chapter 1. Looking at verse 14 and 15, his head and his hair were white like wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it is made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. We should notice this, that what's unique to this passage is that Christ introduces himself as the Son of God. There's no other introduction in any of the other letters where he does this, the Son of God. So he declares himself here, the Son of God. This this should uh, help us to take note of this, that the words that you're about to hear come from Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The uh, alternative use, use here of Christ's name, the Son of God, has its roots in a Jewish and early Christian interpretive tradition as they understood that the Son of Man and the Son of God were of the same thing, of the same substance. Originally, they would have looked at the Old Testament passages and and saw this declaration of sons of God as Israel itself. But Jesus being true Israel, the early Christian understanding is that this is indeed the Son of God, and that his description as Son of Man and his description as Son of God are identical, that he is the designated God-man. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, as we see that he is called one like the Son of Man. He was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion, honor, and a kingdom so that all the people's nations and populations of all languages might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. You see, so this declaration of him as the son of man and son of God are one and the same, right? Because he has been given a kingdom from the father that will last forever. A a kingdom that is uh, definitely different than what the world is. So this added designation, son of God, confirms that John has Daniel 3 in mind. Because he's thinking about this idea that there were, remember those three friends, 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who they go into the fire. And just, uh, they were delivered by one like a son of the gods. And just as that son of God protected them in the midst of persecution, we see. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king, chapter 3, verse 24 and 25. Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up quickly and he said to his counselors, Was it not three men that we abound through into, into, into the middle of the fire? They replied to the king, Absolutely, O king. He responded, Look, I see four men untied and walking about in the middle of the fire, unharmed. And the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. And see, what... what uh, John is attempting to do here to connect us here to the passage in Daniel as he's thinking about proclaiming this to them is that Christ will do the same spiritually for those who are found faithful in Thyatira. That which God did in Daniel, he will protect them. He will take them through the fire, that he will preserve them. The promise holds true for you and I also. God in Christ Jesus will deliver you and protect you and preserve you spiritually if you remain faithful in the midst of persecution and you repent of your own in, of your own tolerant attitude concerning idolatry and compromise and worldliness. This is the only place in the whole book where this title, this title, Son of God, appears. It points us to the intent of the human author here. This is what we call a polemic against the current situation in Thyatira. To define polemic for you, it's, it's really just a strongly worded attack on someone or something. This is strongly worded. This is, a, and you will see, of course, as you saw in the passages we read it, it is a strongly worded passage. It is firm in its a declaration of what God is doing in Christ Jesus as judge. It's very, very clear. And so, John uses this title, the Son of God, to connect us and to connect the church to that. What Christ is saying here to the church at Thyatira and what he's saying to the church here at Spring Hill is this. This must be heeded. We must hear it. We must obey it. We must respond to it because this comes from the Son of God. This is the authority of heaven and the authority of earth speaking to the church. Listen to him. The time is near. This judgment is coming. And the judge who is coming is described in this passage as having eyes like a flame of fire. This echoes... Daniel 10, chapter 6, uh, chapter 10, verse 6. His body also was like topaz. His face had the appearance of lightning. His eyes were like flaming torches. His arms and feet like the gleam of polished bronze. And the sound of his words were like the sound of a multitude. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Sounds like Revelation 1, 14 and 15. He is the judge, you see, of the hearts of men. His flaming eyes burn through the pretense of the human heart. They expose even our own motivations and the thoughts of all men. Our fleshy, futile efforts are ignited upon his fiery gaze as he looks upon us. And his feet being like burnished bronze, he's the one who has been tested. He is the one who's been tested and he found, he was found lacking nothing. We might remember in the first advent of Christ, he came as our human representative. 
and he took on himself the fire of the wrath of God against sin. And what is being unveiled here as he comes in his second advent, he's coming to judge the world in righteousness and with fire. We just finished the uh, World Series for those of you who care about baseball, right? And and you guys know that that in in uh, in a baseball game when it gets down to the bottom of the ninth, right? And there's two outs, and it, it's a it's a one run game, and the uh, manager goes to get the hook. He's going out to the mound, and he's going to bring in the relief pitcher. He's bringing the guy who's coming in. And we don't have to guess at what is happening when the closer comes in. When the closer comes in, he's bringing the heat. He's bringing the fastball. It's coming right down the pipe. We know that, right? He is coming. And so as we think about this, and and we think about... uh, this Jesus who is coming, and we are really at the bottom of the ninth. I really believe that we are living in the bottom of the ninth inning, guys. We're at the bottom of the ninth, and we can't be looking for an off-speed pitch. We can't be looking for something that's just a little outside the strike zone. We can't be looking for something that is comfortable for us to hit because Jesus, the closer, is bringing the flame. And it's straight, and it's perfect, and it's right, and it's true. This, he wants us to know. That he's coming, and he's true, and he is God, and he is in the flesh, and he is the king, and he is the judge. Now look at what he commends them for in verse 19. I know your deeds, and your love, and faith, and service, and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at the first. So as we analyze the situation here in Thyatira, we can see that this commendation can be contrasted with the condemnation of what happened at Ephesus. So at Ephesus, this in chapters uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, the church is condemned because their love had grown cold. That their zealousness, zealousness for doctrinal integrity, they, they held on to that, but they had become insular and they had no longer expressed the zeal that they once had for witnessing to Jesus Christ. And they hadn't told the world about the love of Jesus. Well, in contrast here, what we see is that John is saying uh, from Jesus' mouth that the church at Thyatira is commended because their witness had not grown cold. In fact, your deeds of late are even greater than at the first. It's obvious that you're growing in love because you are out there witnessing to the world the truth about Jesus. The witness of Christ was a demonstration uh, outside of the assembly. This love, faith, and service, and perseverance, and persecution was on the increase. You see, the works for which this church is first recognized are not general deeds of, of Christian service, but their works of persevering, that their witness is persevering to the outside world. When love, faith, and endurance, and especially when we see endurance and faith elsewhere in the book of Revelation, they almost always refer to a preserving witness, a persevering witness. So now, verse 20, but I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they 
they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. So I got a question for us to answer this morning, a few of them. A couple of us, a couple questions for us to ponder. When should you stop listening to a false teacher? My answer is this, as soon as they open their mouth. Who is held to account for a deviation from sound doctrine in the church? Is it the teacher? Is it the listener? Is it both? It's both. Yet the church member seems to, uh, who listens to falsehood, knowing, knowing that they have been delivered the truth, they must account for their deviations. They must account for the ways in which they've tolerated falsehood. When Paul addressed the church, church at Galatia, how did he address the hearers in that church? In chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 of Galatians, he says, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you. They tolerated some false teaching. And he addresses him and says, I'm amazed that you're quickly deserting him who called you. By the grace of Christ, they, you've been called and you have deserted him for a different gospel which is not just another account, but there are some who are disturbing you and they want to distort the gospel of Christ. Paul here says, there's a distortion of the truth and you have tolerated this distortion. Some of you are even adhering and believing it. Notice how pointed he gets when he gets to chapter 3 of Galatians. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? See, the commendation of the church at Thyatira is much like the commendation of that church and much like the commendation of the church at Pergamum that we looked at last week. You see, the teaching of Balaam, the Nicolaitans, and Jezebel, they're almost identical. Like Pergamum, the church of Thyatira is accused of giving free reign to a group of false teachers in influencing God's servants to compromise with idolatrous aspects of their pagan culture. And here we see that the falsehood is described in terms of a woman. So this indicates that it's actually gotten, it's pretty bad at Thyatira because it is growing. The falsehood is, is, is described in terms of a woman indicates that this is the type of deviation that breeds and gives birth to more corruption. It gives birth to, to even further Corruption. You tolerate the woman Jezebel. See, this is a tolerant church. At first, the tolerance, right? I'm sure that this church ha didn't start out into this point where they're so fully corrupt as they are now. They started out with just a little deviation, a little tolerance. Let's add just a little bit of the world into what it is that we're doing, right? So then there's compromise. And the compromise gave birth to more compromise. And that compromise gives birth to even more until it comes to the point where the whole church is actually corrupted by this compromise, by this idea of being tolerant, of being friendly to the world, right? Of blending in with society. See the teaching of Jezebel. Jezebel incited King Ahab and Israel to compromise and to fornicate by worshiping Baal. 
In 1 Kings 16, 31, it says, And as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, he married Jezebel, the daughter of Esbal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. See, the church of Thyatira is guilty of trivializing the idea that you can blend the world and its system and its philosophies and the authority of God's word and scripture and the truth of the gospel. You could blend them together. They trivialize this idea. It's not a big deal. They might say, you need to let go of some of your convictions. You, you need to just drop those. In 1 Kings 21 and 25, it says, There was no one like Ahab who gave himself over to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, Jezebel his wife, incited him. See, the church today can be incited to tolerate the doctrines of the world, can it not? There's a lot of enticements out there for us to do that. See, the Jezebel spirit is alive and well today. And she appeals to the things even the church holds dear. But what she does is she twists them to her own end. Think about what Jezebel says in our world today. It's a truth. Love is love. Love is love. That's the mantra of Jezebel in the world. But what she means is this. No matter how perverse your sexual proclivities are, Without limits, love is love. Without considering the scripture, love is love. Women's rights are human rights, Jezebel proclaims. Even if those rights violate the intrinsic human dignity that should be afforded to the unborn, she says women's rights are human rights with disregard to the human that that woman might carry. There are those who say that if the church would just adopt her creeds, Christ would be more appealing to the masses. To stand on the doctrine of God and the clear teaching of Scripture is limiting and it's uninviting, the world would say. The church that begins with ambivalent tolerance to falsehood and worldliness is soon a compromised church. And once the church becomes compromised, then she is, she will firmly and finally end up a corrupted and polluted church, lest she repent. She must repent. 21. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. So the church of Thyatira is fully involved. What are they involved in? Well, I want to put it to you this way, because the scripture seems to, to communicate this, is that she's involved in an adulterous relationship. Thyatira is in, indulging in an adulterous relationship with the world and with its system. The language here that is used is that of an immoral relationship. In the Greek text, it connotates things like this, fornication, sexual immorality, the two becoming one. There's a marriage that has taken place, an unholy union, as it were. 
This is, this is what he's saying. And, and look at how serious the judge is about this unholy union. I'm judging her, the deceiver, but all who are in her, all of those who commit adultery with her, all of those who have uh, married themselves to her. I gave her time to repent, but she wouldn't. I'm giving you time right now to repent. He's commanding you to repent. If you don't repent of her deeds, if you don't repent of the worldliness that is within you, know this, that you will be her children. And I will treat her children just as I treat her. I will be your judge. This is serious, serious business. Later on in chapter 18, we see that the Jezebel spirit is referred to as Babylon. And there's a warning of the complete judgment upon her and all who have married themselves to her. All the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts and I will give to each one according to your deeds. The world and all of its system is of the evil one and will come under the wrath of God. And so too will those who belong to her through tolerance that has led to compromise and unrepentant compromise that has led to a sickness that has led to utter corruption. Look at chapter 18 with me. It says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. For all the nations have fallen because of the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed acts of sexual immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have become rich from the excessive wealth of her luxury. And listen to the command in 18.4. Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive any of her plagues. For her sins have piled up as the high, as high as heaven, and God has remembered her offenses. This is tied directly to what he's saying here. This is the full and final judgment. This is when it comes. And when it comes, he says, there are still those who are in there who have not repented, and he's commanding even then, come out of her. Come out of that system, or you will, uh, you will participate in her sickness. You who have participated in that illness, you who have married yourself to her, you've got to come out of her. And John is speaking to Thyatira specifically here and saying the same thing. Come out of her. Come out of her. You have married yourself to the world and its system. Come out of her. Many of the church in the Western world is sick today because the church has married herself to the world. And the church calls itself loving by giving away some sort of cheap grace, something that we jokingly call sloppy agape, right? It's love without limits, love without boundaries. Their tolerance, they laud as a virtue. And the truth of the matter is that their tolerance has led to compromise, which has rendered them polluted. 
So strong is their marriage to the world that when they're called to become out of her because she is judged, they will weep and mourn the loss of the benefits of their immoral connection to her. Think about this. This is dangerous for me to say, I guess. It is dangerous a bit. But I think you can honestly say from what I have seen in the world and what I've seen in numerous places of worship is that if you point out this worldliness, this embracing of the world's philosophies and systems, and you call them to come out of it, the reason why they won't come is they love the benefits of it. They love the benefits of the worldliness, riches, wealth, the things that the world offers. They love it. And they can't stand it. And they would get angry at me if I said, you, you must come out of it. You must separate yourself from that. Think about what a big knock it is on Christians who say, no, we are to separate ourselves from the world. We're to look different than the world. We're to be different than the world. And then I know pastors who have said to me, oh, but you've, you've got to appeal to them. So you've got to embrace some of the things that they, no, I don't. I don't have to do that. I don't have to do that. Anyway, let's look at, at verses 9 uh, through 19 of chapter 18. I'm just going to read this whole big chunk of it because we're going to see that, that in the end, there'll be those who are in her, who are called to come out of her, and they weep. The kings of the earth who committed acts of sexual immorality and lived luxuriously with her will weep and mourn over her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance because of the fear of the torment, saying, Woe, woe to the great city Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. And then the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold, silver, precious stones, pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet, every kind of citron wood, every article of ivory, every article made from very valuable wood, bronze, iron, marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, perfume, frankincense, wine, olive oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle, sheep, and cargo of horses, carriages, slaves, and human lives. The fruit you long for has left you. And all the luxuries, luxurious and splendid, have passed away from you, and people will no longer find them. The merchants of these things who became rich from her will stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe to the great city. She who was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold, precious stones and pearls, for in one hour such great wealth has been laid to waste. And every shipmaster and every passenger and sailor and all who make their living by the sea stood at a distance. And they were crying as they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads and they were crying out, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe to that great city in which all who had ships at sea became rich from her prosperity. In one hour, she'd been laid waste. See, I think that, that it's dangerous for me to say this because when you say this, there are those who weep and who mourn, who love the riches just like these will. They love what they have gotten. If our economy completely collapsed and fell completely apart right now, today, where we live, if everything fell apart, the things that we, we hold dear in society, entertainment, 
all of those things, if all of those things went away because it was the judgment of God, if all of those things dropped off and we were called and commanded to come away from that, to come out of those time-wasting things, would you stand in joy of your salvation in Christ? Or would you mourn your loss? Would you say, I want it the way it used to be? I want it, I want life the way it used to be. When I had all this freedom and I had all these things that I could do, all these things that I could participate in, all of these luxuries, I want them back. Would you weep? Verse 24, I say to you, the rest who are at Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. As in Thyatira, it is in all churches. The wheat and the tares, they grow up together. And as they grow up, they're almost indistinguishable one from another. There are those who play church on Sunday, and they're married to the world and its system all week. There are those who have blended Christianity with the philosophy and the creeds of man. And there are those also in the church at the same time who hold firmly to Christ. And they believe and they understand and they live according to the gospel of Jesus Christ and they do so without compromise. They hold fast to what they have in Christ without compromising knowing that the world cannot offer what Christ has secured. They know this, that I have been raised with him to endless life. They hold fast to that truth, knowing that what that really means is that he is holding me fast. He is holding on to me steadily. Nothing the world could offer, no blending could be good enough for me because Christ holds me fast and I hold fast to him. Both of those are going on in the church at Thyatira. Both of those things are going on at the same time. Because notice what he says. To those of you who have not held on to this teaching, those of you who have not been incorporated into this system, those of you, I lay no other burden upon you. Because see, what he wants to do is encourage that witness to continue to grow. As he said in the beginning, he commends them that the words, the works of late are greater than those at the first. He says, to you who have not married yourself, to that, hold on to what you have and continue. Continue to be a good witness of Jesus Christ to the world. But to those of you who have gone into her, come out. The time to repent is now. Come out. 26, the promise. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces. As I also have received authority from my father, I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. You see, the whole book, and especially here in this chapter, we, we need to understand this. The time is near and the master is coming. He's looking for faithful and sensible servants. When Jesus returns, he will judge the nations and all who are married to it. There's only two things that can come out of this. Jesus, when he comes as judge, is either going to be your judge or he's going to be your Lord and master. 
It's going to be one of those things. He's either held on to you and you've held on to him and you have held on to him by faith and you've trusted and you've been a faithful witness to him. Or when he returns to judge the nations, if you have married her, well then the judgment belongs to you too. So he's declaring to you right now, come out of her. Come out of her. Leave the world behind. You either be judged along with the nations or you're going to rule with Christ. That's our, that's our, that's our position right now. You're either, you're either be judged along with the nations or you will rule and reign with Christ. Ask this of the Lord as we take our moment of silence. What areas in your life have you incorporated the teaching of the world into your walk with Christ? Ask yourselves, how much am I married to the world system? Ask this, has my love grown cold? Or am I witnessing to Christ now even more than when I first believed? I'm not asking you to evaluate those things in yourself that I have not and am not evaluating in myself. How many ways am I married to the world? I should ask her for a divorce. How many ways has my love grown, grown cold over time? Father, I do ask that you once again would inflame our hearts in love toward you. That if we have grown cold, we would do the things that we did at the first and we would do them with more fervor and more energy by the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, those you are calling out of the world and its system right now, by your grace, you would grant them repentance on either renewed faith or a first-time faith. I ask, Lord, that you would transform them, that you would separate them from the world, separate them unto yourself. God, I do ask for your help. Amen.